even more on the Facebook Live and even more on the on the podcast recording end of the end of this. This is, of course, a very solemn and reflective day here in the uh, in the in the Jewish community uh, on, on Yom, Yom, on Yom, Yom Hashoah. Echo here. Oh, I think we're done with the echo. You're good. Okay, here on, on Yom, Yom HaShoah, and we have this uh, very special program today, observing Yom HaShoah together through stories and poetry. And we're fortunate to be here with Janet Kirchheimer, who is the author of How to Spot One of Us, poems about her family and the Shoah. She is currently producing After, a cinematic documentary that explores poetry written about the Holocaust. We will have the opportunity to learn from Janet uh, and to engage in, uh, in, in in deep reflection today. So thank you all for joining us. And uh, Janet, thank you for leading us. Yeah, thank you so much, Rabbi Shmuley. I'm really, I'm truly, truly honored to be here on Yom HaShoah. And um, I just wanna give you just sort of a brief outline. What we're gonna do is um, I'll talk a little bit about some family stories. I'll read some poetry. I wanna leave time for discussion, any questions you have. and. Towards the end, I want to show you uh, the trailer from my film. And um, so if you have any questions, just pop them in the chat and we'll, you know, we'll take some, some time to do that. So thank you. It was evening and it was morning. Those two days history records as Kristallnacht, November 9th and 10th, two days of Nazi sponsored rioting looting and destruction. About a hundred or so Jews were murdered. At least 30,000 were taken to concentration camps and my father was one of them. So I want to read you as Rabbi Shmuley talked about my book. Unfortunately, it's pretty much out of print, um, but I want to at least read you um, some poems from the book. The first is called Town Hall. And I should say that my father was born in Germany and he was arrested on Kristallnacht. Town hall. What for, my father asked. What did I do? I'm only 16. And the gendarme, the policeman told him, if he didn't like it, if he asked any more questions, he could go home. They'd arrest his father instead. And he saw his father paying his tax bill in the next room. And he didn't call out, afraid they'd arrest him too. Excuse me. Uh, excuse me, sorry. Afraid his father would want to take his place. And the gendarme said he had a job to do, a quota of 10 men. And he didn't care how he filled it. And my father knew the gendarme went to school with his daughter. He was told to empty his pockets, turn in any money and weapons, and he turned in his pocket knife and told the gendarme he had to go to the bathroom. And another gendarme, Wilhelm, took him, and he knew Wilhelm too. He told Wilhelm not to worry, he wasn't going to run away. And Wilhelm said he knew, but was just doing his job. As my father and nine men were loaded on a truck that said drink Coca-Cola, he turned and saw Wilhelm crying like a child. 
So they were arrested and then sent to a county jail. And two days later, they were sent to Dachau. And to notice that in the poem, I talk that they um, arrested, their quota was 10 men. And as some of you may know that the prayer quorum is 10. So the Nazis knew exactly what they were doing and they were sending deep messages. This poem is called Breaking Laws and I used the word capo and capos were administrative prisoners um, who were in charge of the barracks. Breaking laws, Kristallnacht, broken glass. Nazis arrest him, 16 years old. Dachau, November 1938, a striped cotton uniform. It's almost winter. He shares a bunk with a man in his 50s who freezes to death one night. The next morning, a capo tells him, take off the man's long underwear, do it quickly before the SS come for the body. You will freeze at night too if you don't. It is the custom of some Jews not to wear clothes from a dead body and to save one's life, the rabbis teach one must break custom. He washes the underwear that night, places it over a chair next to the wood stove to dry, sleeps on it, still damp, to make sure no one will steal it. And when I think about this poem as I was writing it, I kept thinking about all the laws that got broken. That first of all, there was Kristallnacht. People, you know, men were arrested and my father, 16 years old, was sent to a concentration camp. And he told me, when you got your uniform, if you were lucky, you got a hat. Um, that was considered luck. And, um, and they had to sew their numbers onto their own uniforms. So, and then this man freezes to death and the capo comes to tell him that, you know, please take his long underwear off. You're gonna freeze to death also if you don't. And because my father was one of the younger people who, who were there and how he had to break his custom that you don't, you don't wear the clothes from a dead body, but he had to do it. And then he had to sleep on the long underwear to make sure another Jew didn't steal it from him. So the circumstances that people were placed under. And this poem is called Lines. My father stood in line to be photographed, stood in line to be fingerprinted, stood in line to have his head shaved. You're young here, Acapo told him, as he got to the front of another line and gave his name, age, hometown, occupation, student. And he saw men standing in another line, saw men standing naked on a concrete slab. And the capo told my father, hold your breath when the SS aim the fire hoses at your mouth. If you don't, you'll swallow water, choke, lose your balance. The SS will gang up on you. They're only kids, they'll get a kick out of it. He stood in line to strip. Naked, he stood in line to turn in his winter coat, his clothes, his shoes. 
He stood in line to stand on that concrete slab. And um, so in my father's family, there were six children. Four were lucky to survive and two did not. His older sister, Ruth, who was 21 and his youngest brother, Joseph, who was 11, along with his mother and father were murdered in Auschwitz um, upon arrival. There are no record, there are records of them being deported. Very long story, but they got from um, Germany to Holland and then were deported to Westerbork, which was a camp in Holland. And then in 1942 were sent to Auschwitz and killed there. So I'd like to read this about um, my father. It's called My Father's Sister. In an old black and white photograph, Ruth looked just like Dorothy with long hair, dark braids and a small black dog on her lap. But it was not Kansas and she could not click her heels three times and go home. She did not own a pair of ruby slippers and the yellow brick road did not lead to the gates of the Emerald City. It led to the gates of Auschwitz. So um, now I'd like to, does, first of all, does anybody have any questions on anything that I read? Is there anything? No? Okay. Um, all right, I'll keep going then. So um, now I'll tell you a little bit about my mother. My mother, also born in Germany, was six years old when um, she was in the first grades and first grade and kids in her class lined her up against a wall at school, threw rocks at her and called her Yuda um, because she refused to say Heil Hitler. The um, principal brought her home, said he could no longer protect her in school. And about four or so months later, her parents were able to get her out to an orphanage in Amsterdam. They had some relatives there and it was called the Israelitish Machis Ways House. There were 104 girls in the orphanage, only four survived. So I'd like to read you a little bit about my mother. The photograph in my hand, my mother, four years old, blonde curls, wearing a smock dress in a field of goldenrod, her doll on her lap and her dog at her side. Two years later, the girl in the photograph would be backed up against a wall at school by kids in her class for refusing to say Heil Hitler. And they would throw rocks, beat her up, call her Yuda, Jew. Her dress would be torn and her parents would have to find a way to get her out of Germany. She would be sent to an orphanage in Amsterdam and they would wait two years for their visas to America. I want to ask the girl what would have become of her if her parents hadn't found a way out. Would she have survived? Would she have been experimented on like her cousin Hani, who returned home after the war and rarely left her room? Or would she like another cousin Bertel have tried to cross the Pyrenees into Spain and never be heard from again. What if Hitler had never come to power 
Would she and her parents still have come to America? Would she have met my father? And who would she have married if she stayed in Germany? And who would she have become? And what would have become of me? I cannot let go of it. So um, my mother was lucky to come out with her parents. And she also had a sister who was uh, 19 years older and she came, was able to come out a year later. And um, I would like to just read another poem about um, my father and his little brother, Joseph. Brothers, Bula is what my father's little brother, Joseph, used to call him when they were kids. Sometimes I have trouble remembering that my father got to be a kid, that there was a time when he hadn't gotten a note in his report card saying that Jews could no longer attend school with Aryan children, when he didn't get chased off the field for playing soccer with the other kids, when he didn't see the Jews not welcome sign at the public pool, and he and his friends didn't have brown shirted boys chasing after them on a bike trip. And sometimes I wonder what it would be like if Joseph were able to call. So I think in this poem, the brown shirted boys are a reference to the Hitler youth, the Hitler Jugend, and they were trained in the ways of Nazism and could do whatever they wanted. And my father told me that he used to take his little brother Joseph to school and these brown shirted boys would ride after them trying to catch them all the time. And, and we can see how even today these things still exist, right? There are schools that people cannot get into. There are places that don't welcome um, people who are different. And it's continued when my parents got married, they went to Florida on their honeymoon and in Miami, they were, went in front of a hotel and there was a sign, no blacks, no Jews, no dogs allowed. So unfortunately, all of these things continue. And, and for me, I, I turned to poetry because as Charles Bukowski said, um, poetry happens when nothing else can. And I tried to write short stories. I tried to write essays and some were good, but I couldn't say what I needed to say until I started to write poetry. And what poetry does is it's a very gentle way to learn about the Holocaust through a medium that where, where it's important what is said, what's more important is what's not on the page the silences, the sounds that the lack of words make um, and the line breaks and when you see it and when you hear it, the cadence is different. That poetry is not a way of normal speaking. Poetry leads the reader and we want, we're trying to tell you something and we're trying to invite you to come on this journey. I want you to come with me as I'm learning something as I'm trying to figure something out. Even though every poet knows that you can't figure it all out in a poem. There is always gonna be something 
there are way more questions than there are answers. So I would like to uh, read you this poem called Tell Me, Joseph. Do you know that the clouds of summer still give way to the clear skies of fall? That at sunset, the horizon seems to tumble from blue, pink, and orange to black ink that spills across the sky? And do you know that I dream you were liberated from Auschwitz? That you returned to Maastricht and visited your friend Paul, and he returned the leather school bag you gave him the night before you were deported, and he gave you the four postcards you sent him from Westerbork before you sent, were sent to Auschwitz. And do you know that the postcards you wrote were given by Paul to the Yodes Historisch Museum in Amsterdam, the Jewish Historical Museum, and I found copies on the internet. And do you know I will travel to the museum this January to meet Paul and see the words you wrote as an 11 year old, the words that are here now in place of you. And tell me, Joseph, do you know that sometimes in the middle of the night, I look out the window and watch the sky and I see rain begin to fall and watch more fall down. So like any child of survivors, you, it's like a, a phantom limb, you miss the family that you never had. And I never got to know Joseph and I never got to know Ruth and I never got to know my paternal uh, grandparents and my maternal grandfather died before I was born. And, and I got, I have very vague memories of my maternal grandmother and I am grateful that I had one grandmother. And to think of what life would be like. Um, and poetry for me is the way that I try to figure out my place in the world. And poetry allows me to just get in there. The Holocaust I think is this maze. And once you're in, you just, you can't work your way out. There are no pat answers. There is nothing that will give you any respite from dealing with a mass genocide, at least for me. So um, I was able to go to um, Holland and um, I spent an afternoon at the Jods Historisch Museum, the Jewish Historical Museum in Amsterdam. And this poem is called Thursday Afternoon at the Jods Historisch Museum, Amsterdam. I sit on a bench on the second floor of the museum built upon the ruins of four synagogues, their interiors destroyed by the Nazis. Watching a movie projected on a white wall, a montage of Jewish life in Holland during the war. A wedding, yellow stars sewn on overcoats, people leaving the hall, people jammed into cattle cars, deportations to Westerbork, two men shaking hands as if they will meet again soon. The doors slam, steel bars lock. I watch the footage over and over, hoping to find Oma, Opa, maybe even Ruth or Joseph, maybe one face 
one last glance, one last handshake. But tears blur the faces of the people getting on the trains and I can no longer see if you are there. So when I still can see myself sitting and watching this film, I must have watched it, it was very short, maybe two minutes, I must have watched it at least 10 times, hoping and praying that I would see someone, but I did not. Um, but I did get to see the postcards that Joseph Wright wrote um, to his friend, Paul. They were both 11 years old and they, uh, Paul was Catholic and it was very dangerous for the two of them to be friends. But when I met Paul, he said that we were just two boys. We were 11 years old and we wanted to play. That's all we wanted to do. And they did get to do that. And um, Paul was able to speak to my father and my father thanked him for being a friend to Joseph, that he had a friend before he died. And when I went, I met Paul and I went, I saw the home that they lived in and I was able to see where my family lived before deportation. So that was very important to me. Okay. And this poem is called, It Has Been Reported. Swiss banks laundered money and gold for the Nazis. I asked my mother if any of our relatives had money in Swiss banks. She says, no. I ask my father. He tells me his mother had gold in her teeth. And this poem is um, How to Spot One of Us. It's the title poem of the book. And these are family photos that I am truly, truly blessed um, to be able to have um, and knew that they had to be on the cover of the book. And um, if I'm not sure who's on Facebook and anybody here, but if anyone here is a child of survivors, this poem is, is for you. How to spot one of us. We're the ones who didn't know our relatives spoke with accents. The ones whose parents got nervous if we didn't come home on time, were afraid to let us go places by ourselves, who told the neighborhood kids the numbers on their forearms were their phone numbers, who won't visit Germany, who wake up night after night from dreams, who never talk about the past or never stop talking about the past. And we're the ones who dream about big families, who wish words could just be words, wish camp or selection didn't make us flinch. And sometimes we're the ones who do everything we can so you don't know who we are. And um, so as far as poetry, what poetry does, Poetry works on a lot of levels and there is the plain meaning of the text and then there's what is underneath. Much like the Torah, the Bible, there's the plain meaning and then what else is going on. And poetry really hangs on ambiguity because there's so many things going on in one poem and 
one writer, um, D.L. Hicks, had said that we live in a world that wants us to live in a sort of state, I'm paraphrasing, of disambiguity, where we break things apart and we want to see what they look like on their own. But the whole idea of poetry is that everything is together and there is ambiguity and we want to get good at it because that's the way life is. Life is complex and life is never anything that you can just break out to simple parts. There's always ambiguity in lives and poetry makes us get in there and muck around in ambiguity. So I would like to read you another poem called At the Butchers. And what happens sometimes for children of survivors, this, this is not part of my everyday life, but it does happen and things will come and bam, you are just transported into another world of the Holocaust. So this is called At the Butchers. Take a number, please, the dispenser reads at the butchers. I take one and wait in line. It's before Shabbat. Everyone is rushed, people pushing or being pushed, trying to get to the counter, trying to get their food. Someone mutters, I was ahead of you. Who's next, says the butcher, and panic falls from me like a puzzle dropped on the floor, and I can't find all the pieces and the ones I can pick up don't fit together anymore. And I want to tell them about my father's sister and how her visa number was too high. And there were too many people in line ahead of her waiting to get out and how she was deported to Auschwitz and she didn't get a number there. And if she had, she might've survived. And I want to tell them about my friend's mother how she got a number on her forearm in Auschwitz and how she got a visa number after the war and about the dreams she has every night. And the butcher calls my number and I cannot make a sound. Jury duty. Welcome to jury duty. We'll try to make this as painless as possible, says the officer in charge. He means it as a joke. I notice he carries a gun. I begin to knit, knit one, purl two, knit one, purl two. The needles click clack. He announces, we are about to begin the selection process. I drop a stitch. If I call your name, report to the left. He calls my name. In the camps, there were always two lines, one to the guest chamber, one to work. Um, so sometimes we get scared. Um, so I'd like to uh, read you this poem called Family History. The doctor comes in, introduces himself, asks questions about my health, good, recent illnesses, none, operations, tonsils removed when I was three, maternal grandparents, grandmother died at 92 from old age, grandfather died at 66 from a heart attack before I was born, paternal grandparents died before I was born. The doctor says it is important for my medical history 
to know how they died. So I tell him they died in Auschwitz. He has no more questions and tells me to undress for the physical exam. So I really never know when, when things are going to, to appear. So I'd like to stop for another minute and if anybody has any questions or comments, is there anything? I'll check the chat. Uh, oh, okay, so thank you. Yes, uh, can I ask how old you were when you first learned of your family's history? When did you first start writing poems? Um, so I, um, I have to give my parents credit I learned at age appropriate. I, I have a poem that starts, um, my father hangs upside down on a pipe that was part of a fence um, that separated our street from the next. He looks so young. I was about six years old. And I knew from a very, very young age that something was different. My father was an older father everybody in the neighborhood, you know, their fathers were 21, 22. And, you know, so that was different. And, and you know, we were Jewish and, and, and I didn't really know why. And as I got older, they started to tell me things. I remember in high school and college, spending time with my father, he was much older, you know, 16. So he had more memories. Uh, my mom, as I said, was six, and so her memories are less, but she remembers the trauma. Um, she truly, truly remembers the trauma. And so my father and I would talk about what life was like in Germany. And I had to remember that they had lives before the Holocaust. We all live in a world where there is a Holocaust. We didn't live before. And so he told me about his community, the synagogue, the Jewish community in his small village in Southern Germany. And the I asked questions about the food and clothes and his house and wanted to know what the yard looked like and, and all these things. And then one day my father and I sat down and he told me all about his experiences of being arrested and, and sent to Dachau. And, and coming to America and, and what, what that meant um, for him. And when we talked about maybe what his life would have been like had you know the Holocaust never happened and had he stayed in Germany, he tried to get visas to Israel then, Pal then called Palestine. He, um, but his visa for America came first and you went, you went wherever you, were taken uh, at whatever country would take you. And in another poem I have, he, um, my parents were in Israel one year and they're in a hotel and the waiter comes over and he was a Christian from Germany and said that he had come to Israel. He was now living there and asked where my parents were from. And they said, America. And he said, well, you should come to Israel because it's home. And my father looked at him and said, home is anywhere they let you in. And that is their experience. And again, we see the parallels today. It's still, it's still happening. And so we, we would have really interesting discussions and that fueled a lot of my poetry. And I, 
I didn't start writing poetry till I was in my 30s because I kept these stories in my head and I tried to make some as fiction short stories and was doing that and and it just wasn't right and then I switched to essay and some were okay and then as I switched to poetry in my 30s it just like this is what I need um, because that's the way that poetry works and what it allowed me to say and to not say because there's so much about the Holocaust as there is in life that you can't say, and you don't have to say everything. Um, and, and as I said before, my goal is to invite people to come with me as I try to learn something. That's really what poetry, what poetry does. Um, okay. And, um, Maybe what we'll do now is, is take a little break and I'll tell you about my film and uh, Pam will share the trailer. So uh, some years ago, I ended up meeting someone at um, a, uh, somebody's, oh, there we go. Okay, so uh, I ended up meeting, turned out to be a director at a conference and we were talking about our love of poetry and I gave him a copy of my book and Two weeks later, he called and said, would you like to make a film? I'm like, sure. And so we have embarked on this amazing journey. The film is called After, and it features um, contemporary poets writing about the Holocaust. And it, um, it is a performance film with some commentary. And um, I see Pam just put up the link so people can watch it as well and Pam is going to show it and then so why don't you show it and afterwards I'll give you a little bit more on the film. Sorry I was on the understanding that you were going to share your screen. Oh you want me to share it? Sure. Oh yeah. I will. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no problem. Let's see if it's going to come up. Okay. Of course it's not. Give me a second. Let me know if you have any trouble and I'm yeah, more than happy to try. Yeah, Zoom sometimes doesn't like the first try. Okay, can everybody see that? Yes, looks great.
Hi, Janet. I hate to interrupt, but there doesn't seem to be any audio. Oh, okay. Hold on. Okay, we'll start it again. Okay, thank you. Thank you for telling me. I'm sorry. I got to find... Wait. Wasn't sure if it was on your end or... Yeah, let's just see. Hold on. I got to get... There it is. Okay, so hold on. Okay, let me know if you can hear it. It'll start in just a moment. I apologize for that. Yes, that I can hear now. Thank you. is going to be as important a form of human speech as I think it is, then poetry must have in its sight the deepest human experiences, and some of them are historical catastrophes. And we need to remember the people who came before us. It's part of the task of poetry to try and bring the dead back to life. Okay, so that's our, that's our trailer. And um, the film is um, starting post-production now and we hope to have it available in 2021. And uh, it's a 60 minute documentary. So that is our, our film. Are there any questions on that? If not, I'll keep going back. Okay, all right, so I will read you 
some more poems. Um, okay. Oh, thank you, Eddie. We are looking forward to the film being completed as well. So, thank you. This poem is called Sweet Dreams. Sometimes I dream I'm the one who kills Hitler. It's simple. I walk up to him, shoot him in the face, and watch his head explode into a million glass pieces that clink on the floor, like a Saturday morning cartoon characters, except he doesn't get back up. And sometimes I am Yael. I invite Hitler into my tent as he flees from his enemies. He tells me he is thirsty and I give him milk and he falls asleep. I pick up a tent pin and hammer. I drive the pin through his temple until he reaches the ground. Other times I'm part of the plot to assassinate him aboard his plane. This time I make sure the bomb explodes. He falls faster and faster, crashing with such force, the earth swallows him up as if he never existed. And I'm sitting on the back porch. The sun is shining and all my grandparents, cousins, aunts and uncles are laughing and telling stories. And that's a little poem about wishing the past could be different. And I'd like to read a poem. My father um, and mother would speak German in the house and I took four years in high school and read a lot um, in German. And so this is a poem about, about that. Learning a new language. My father is teaching me German. He still speaks it fluently, even though he escaped from Nazi Germany almost 70 years ago when he was 17. We study nouns and verbs. We study when to use the formal pronoun see you and when to use the more familiar do. One must be offered permission to use the familiar. We study dialects, the word ich, I. The Berliners pronounce it ich. Those from Frankfurt on Main, ich. Those from Schwaben, ich or i. He tells me when he was a kid, he and his friends used to say in a Berliner dialect, Berlin Juwesen or Anja Juwesen and Sie war so I was in Berlin and ate an orange and it was very sweet. And then we added, das Meer die Brie, die Gosch Unterglaufe ist, with the juices running down my mouth. He explains, it is in our Schwabish dialect. I should say, it was our dialect. These people lost so much of their identities, of who they were. They needed to reconstruct that. Their childhoods were broken and, and, their la and language. And Paul Salon, um, who is a famous German language poet, said that Language is the thing that survived. It had to go through a lot of variations. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but it did survive and that's what we had. And perhaps some of you have heard, you know, to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. And that, you know, is, that is taken a lot of times out of context, but, but the idea is language is what we have. 
And it's, it's what we use to communicate. And my parents still spoke German at home. And there are some people who after the war would never speak German and I respect that, but that, that's the culture that I come from. And in 2019, I actually went to Germany for the first time. Um, my parents never went back and I never felt the need, but then I got offered that there was going to be um, a ceremony in my mother's hometown to remember the victims of the Holocaust. And my mother was the last person who is still alive from her community. And I was also invited to speak at her school. And my mom made a little video and thanked the children and asked them to be good. A lot of times people ask, will ask me what lessons are there from the Holocaust? And the only one that I know is to never let it happen again to anyone, anywhere on this planet. And unfortunately, it keeps happening. And I think that we we have to be, we have to be good people. And we always have to have hope that things will get better and we need to take action. And here we are on Yom HaShoah, this Memorial Day where we remember. And in Judaism, we need to remember, yes, but we also need to act. That memory is a twofold action. So, um, and by being here today, we're all remembering. And um, so I would like to start to wind it up with a couple of poems. Um, this first one is um, called Maastricht, January, 2007. It's where my family um, got to when they got out of Germany and where they were deported to Westerbork from. I am outside Wilhelmina, single 88. Skies are gray. I take a deep breath and enter the building. I walk up to the third floor. That's where you lived before deportation, before Westerbork, before Auschwitz. I knock on the door, hoping someone is there, hoping someone will let me in. The door is locked. I stay for a while. I walk back down and sit on the curb across the street. I stare up at the third floor. I wonder what your life was like in 1942. Did you stay at home most times, afraid to go out on the street? The yellow star on your overcoats announcing you wherever you went? The synagogue you went to is still there. There is a plaque to those deported from Maastricht to Westerbork, then to Auschwitz or Sobibor. That's where most of you went. Cars go by, people walk past, and I sit, watching the third floor, waiting for something to tell me it's time to go. The street is beautiful, you know, tree-lined, well-kept. A light rain begins to fall. Oma, Opa, Ruth, and Joseph, you jump from the third floor. I catch you and carry you to America with me. And in one of Joseph's last letters, he wrote that with God's help, we will get to America. But unfortunately, they did not. Um, and 
This poem is called Dogs. I came across something, my father tells me, as I'm driving him to cardiac rehab. In my mind, as if his mind were a filing cabinet or the dish where coins and keys are kept, it was something an old man told him when he was a boy, how the stones freeze in winter, but the dogs who chase you don't. And two days later, we're sitting on the back porch on Rosh Hashanah afternoon. And he tells me that the way of life he grew up with in Southern Germany no longer exists. And if he thinks about it too much, it will make him crazy is, and is not worth the consequences. And I want to tell him that I can hear the Chazan singing in shul and I can smell the raisin challahs his mother baked for a sweet new year, but it will not stop the dogs. So we just sit there and watch the birds that have gathered at the feeder. Um, is there any, I see a couple of chats. I just wanna see if there are any questions. Okay, that's that, okay. Um, does anybody have any other questions before we start to wrap up? Okay, um, so I'd like to uh, read you this poem about my father. He loved his birds. And since it's spring and all the birds are flying around, I would like uh, to read you this poem. It's called The Bird Feeder. He goes out on the back porch, makes sure there is enough seed in the feeder, places small pieces of bread on the railing, and throws some on the lawn for the ground feeders. In the summer, he sits in his chair on the porch and waits for the birds. In the winter, he watches from his chair at the kitchen table. Soon they come, white-throated vespers and savannah sparrows, northern cardinals, slate-colored juncos, black-capped chickadees, rusty blackbirds, and crows so big you could put a saddle on them and ride out. Squirrels come too, hanging upside down on the feeder, trying to get the sunflower seeds, leaving the millet and other grains. Each March, he watches for the black-billed cuckoos who bring the spring with them. He calls the downy woodpecker Woody. Woody is his favorite but he doesn't come very often. My father says that's what makes him special. One day he tells me how when he was a boy in Germany, the swallows would come back each spring, nesting in his family's barn where it was warm, flying in and out looking for food for their young. Now he feeds them all, delights in their colors and shapes at the way they eat and spit out the seeds. Late in the afternoon, the sparrows fly off to sleep in the forsythia bush. He sweeps the porch as it turns to evening, sits in his chair, listening to the crows perched on the roof call to one another. Okay. And so I, I do wanna thank everybody for being here. It's really, been an honor to share this hour with you and to share poetry and some thoughts on the Shoah and remembering. And I want to end with um, two poems. 
One is called Thinning Out the Carrots. It's July in New England, and my father and I are working in the garden, thinning out the carrots. We got visas for my mother and Joseph to get out of Germany in 1941 and go to Cuba. Instead, they went to Holland to be with my father and sister who'd gone there in 1940 and waited for their visas to America. My mother said the family should stay together. He puts his head down and continues thinning out the carrots. And I want to end with um, a message of hope because my father told me every day that he was in Dachau, he had hope that he would get out. And he carried hope throughout his life. And I want to end with this last poem called Planting because my father loved his garden as much as he loved his birds. Bringing the dirt to his face, my father smells it. This is good soil, blessed are you. And we plant the garden. And my father tells me he dreamed while in the hospital of his garden, dreamed of it all winter. And he made a vow, a vow he plant again this year, king of the universe. And he tells me when planting seeds, Stay in the middle of the row. Don't go too far to the left or too far to the right. And each morning he goes to his garden who gives us life, tends his plants the way he tends his children, whispers grow, urges them to wrap their tendrils around the fence, hang on and we water the plants. Listen to water as it drips from leaf to leaf to the soil. And my father tells me some days he can almost see the vegetables growing in the sunlight. And I tell him sometimes I can too. Sustains us and brings us to this time. And before eating the vegetables, we make the blessing for tasting food for the first time in its season. Well, thank you so, so much. And may this day remind us that we can make this world a better place. We remember those that we lost and the lives that were just gone far too soon. So thank you. Yes, thank you, Janet, for your very emotional, moving work and for your time. Um, we truly appreciate this. It was an honor. Truly my honor. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And for anybody who wants to be in touch, there. On the Facebook page, um, you can find After a Poetry Film. And if you like that, and feel free to send us a message and we'll keep you posted on how we're doing with the film. Great, thank you, take care. Thank